Rambam Mishnah Torah, Hilchais Bechoros, or Bechoros, the laws of the firstborn animal. So we learned in chapter 1 that when a Jew has a firstborn animal, cattle or sheep, a firstborn kosher animal born to him, he has to give the firstborn to the Kohen. The Kohen offers it as a sacrifice. What if the firstborn happens to be blemished? There's a special law relating to firstborn, and that is the Kohen uses it as his own personal funds. So therefore there's a big difference between blemished and unblemished. <clears throat> now, what is the definition of blemished, and who decides? We learned much earlier that any permanent blemish which disqualify any holy sacrifice, which cause an ordinary sacrifice to be able to be redeemed. What happens with a regular sacrifice, which is found blemish? It has to be redeemed. And the money buys usually another sacrifice. Here it doesn't work that way. But the same blemishes, if they are permanent, that would allow a regular sacrifice to be redeemed, will allow this firstborn sacrifice in Nafal Echad But if one of these blemishes occurred to a firstborn animal, it's not a sacrifice, and it could be slaughtered anywhere. It's not holy. It's everyday money to the Kohen. And we learned, and we will learn, that the Kohen can invite anybody to eat of it, even an Israelite, even a non-Jew. It doesn't have holiness. It's just regular food because it's blemished. We want to know the list of these blemishes. We've already explained them in the laws of the prohibited offerings on the altar. Chapter 2. We sat right here and learned lists and lists of blemishes. There are 73 blemishes that disqualify an animal. But six of them are not applicable to male animals. Those are the blemishes. And therefore he says, 67 blemishes will disqualify an animal. Now that is blemish that consists of the category of blemishes which will disqualify an offering. But then there are a whole list of other more minor blemishes where it says that because of this blemish, the sacrifice is not, uh, ay, 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 it's not great, ay, ay, ay. So it says with these second tier blemishes, you should not offer it on the altar and you should also not redeem it. So also these second level blemishes, you can't slaughter the firstborn as mundane everyday food, it also cannot, or it also cannot be offered on the altar. It's what we say, as we say in Yiddish, neither here nor there. What should happen to it? It hangs out. Until it develops a permanent blemish. If a firstborn develops a transient or passing blemish, something that passes, my father, blessed memory, who, in addition to being a wonderful teacher and a terrific father and a great Torah scholar, had an amazing sense of humor. And my father would tell the story of the poor man who approached a wealthy man. He says, do me a favor. I'm having challenges. Can you, this is many, many years ago, and $10 was a lot of money. Can you lend me $10 until my brother straightens out? He says, of course, here it is. He says, thank you. By the way, he's a hunchback. He ain't never straightening out. So there are transient... What number is that? There are passing blemishes and there are permanent blemishes. My producer is producing another production on his iPod. He doesn't have an iPod, he has something else. It's neither slaughtered nor offered. It should just pasture until it has a permanent non-passing blemish. Then he can slaughter it as it is his own money. So also, if a transgression was committed with this animal, such as a sexual act with a human being, which we learned earlier, when it has witnesses, the animal is sometimes killed under certain circumstances. But when there's only one witness, or the owner himself comes, that just makes it unfit for offering. Or it killed someone, only one witness watched. Or the owner himself reported it. Or it was designated and set aside as an idol. Or it was served as an idol. One is designated, the other served. It should be left to pasture. It develops a permanent blemish. As we explain in the laws of the prohibitions of the old. In a Syrian section, firstborn, which by halacha is not really called the firstborn, but the Torah says opening the womb, and this came not from the womb, this came out of the belly, and the next offspring that comes after that, even if it came from the womb, they're both not considered a firstborn. Are you the firstborn? It is a firstborn, yes, but it didn't open the womb. Because it does not be offspring that opened the womb. That's why it's called a Caesarean section. And then the second one, it may be the first one that opened the womb, but another came before it. Even if a female offspring came about through a C-section, and a male offspring came normally through the womb, it's not considered a firstborn. 
Now we learned that the firstborn animal, we're talking about males, not females. And therefore, a firstborn which is androgynous, we're not sure male or female, has no sanctity. Because we have to give it the benefit of the doubt and say it's female. Shame by the Kayakum. In the case of a female firstborn, the coin gets nothing. The Avim, you can work with it. You can shear it for a wool. Like everyday animals. However, if the animal is born with an undetermined uh, sexual identity, we're not sure if it's a male or a female because its genitals are covered. We're unsure. And at any moment, we could become sure. Therefore, it has to wait until it's blemished and have its owner eat it because we're not sure what gender it is. Whether this particular animal uh, passed water as a female or as a male, urinating as a male or as a female, we're still unsure until we become sure. We learned a lot of this earlier. Rachel, a sheep, which gives birth to an offspring that looks more like a goat. A ace or a goat, which gave birth to an offspring that looks more like a sheep. So obviously we're talking about crossbreeding. There is an exemption from the obligation of firstborn shenemar. Only the firstborn, but the firstborn of an ox. The mother has to be an ox, and its firstborn has to be an ox. They both have to be the same species. However, we learned earlier, if the offspring has some of the signs of its mother, it can be considered a firstborn. Now, being that it is a firstborn, there's nothing that would be a greater blemish than this. So the blemish is, in, is built in. There's no greater blemish than a deviation from the norms of creation. Even a cow which gave birth to something that looks more like a donkey. But it has some of the signs of a cow. Cow, cow. This is a firstborn given to the coin. The reason is because the species of donkey also has the laws of firstborn. It has to be exchanged for sheep. But if this cow gave birth something that looks more like a horse or a camel, even though it has some of the signs of a cow, it is in doubt as to whether it is a firstborn or not, and there are no laws of firstborn with horses and camels, but therefore, let it be eaten by the owners. What if the Kohen took it? So now the Kohen has possession. Remember, we learned that possession is nine-tenths of the law. If you want to take something out of someone else's possession, you bring the proof, now the Kohen has it, right, wrong, or otherwise, he has it. Then it needs to be proven that it's not his. Maybe it is a firstborn. We cannot take it away from him. The famous old saying that what is the definition of a camel? The definition of a camel is a horse made by committee. When the committee got together, they said, we're going to create a horse. Out came a camel. I'd walk a mile for a camel. Okay. Now we come into a real problem. Because it was human nature that people could not contain themselves sometimes, and they themselves would cause the blemish in the firstborn. Who would cause the blemish? The coin himself. What do I need to bring it to Jerusalem and offer it as a sacrifice and have some of the meat? Let me eat it like my everyday meat. Let me sell it. Let me trade it. Let me do whatever I want. So if somebody causes the blemish himself, being that he did a transgression, causing a blemish in the firstborn is a sin. He's penalized. He is not permitted to slaughter this as an everyday animal because of this blemish. He has to wait until another blemish develops on its own. Until another blemish develops on its own. What if this guy dies? And now, who does this animal belong to? His estate, his children. It's okay for his son, the Kohen, to slaughter it as everyday food with the blemish that his father caused. Because the penalty was not carried over to the next generation. What if somebody indirectly caused the firstborn to develop a blemish? What does it mean to indirectly cause a firstborn to develop a blemish? Well, when we were kids in New Jersey, we had a word for it. You probably had the same words when you were kids, if you were kids. It's called accidentally on purpose. I did it accidentally on purpose. Again, for example, what's accidentally on purpose? The Kohen put a fig on the ear of the firstborn. And that fig was so tempting, and there was a dog in the neighborhood. The dog came, when the and jumped up and grabbed the fig, and he took part of his ear. There's a blemish. You know, you know, if you're going to stick a fig in the ear of a baby animal, your, your uh, what is it, the rock one? No, not rock, your, your, your uh, German shepherd is going to come and have a bite of the ear. Or the animal was caused to pass through some iron walls with sharp edges and glass edges. Obviously, the forearm is going to be cut, cut off. Or another scenario, he said to a non-Jew, why don't you, he whispered in his ear, why don't you create a blemish? And again, blemishes in halacha don't have to be serious blemishes. 
A split in the lip is a blemish. Because he contributed accidentally on purpose, as we used to say in Newark, to this blemish, he may not slaughter the animal for his own personal use. It's fine. Because he contributed to the development of this blemish. This is the general rule. Any blemish that was made by his knowledge, he knew it was coming down. He may not slaughter it as everyday food. But if it was totally outside the spectrum of his knowledge, he can slaughter it. What if he said he was sitting over coffee in Starbucks or coffee bean? Ingesting kosher ingredients. And he says to his friends, ah, if only this firstborn would develop a blemish, boy, could we have a dinner. And a Gentile, non-Jewish friend of his herd, he also by woman went and wanted to be a good friend, so he caused a blemish. Here, he may slaughter it as everyday food. Why? Because he didn't say, please do it. He didn't even know what happened. He just made a comment as he was having, as he was sipping on his cappuccino. He just said, ah, if only my animal, this is not called with his knowledge. You, or frappuccino, but it's got to be kosher. What if you saw a person do a deed that would ordinarily cause a blemish to develop in his animal? Again, we're talking about the Kohen, because it's the Kohen's animal. We have no idea in the scab of the Mumzele, in the scab whether he meant this or not, but whatever he was doing would probably cause it. He should not slaughter the animal for his own use. Take that, for example. He put out barley, which the animal likes to eat, in a narrow place filled with thorns. The animal doesn't have a great IQ, but it likes barley. So he goes after the barley, and as it eats and munches over the barley, his lip is cut. I feel like even if this Kohen was not only a God-fearing one, but an observant one, and he didn't really do it, still, it's best that he not slaughtered for his own personal purpose because of this, because he kind of set it up. was in all similar situations. You now live. What if a firstborn was chasing a human being, a man? He's chasing a man. And the guy who was being chased kicked it. Today, in order to take its focus away from the chase, give it a good kick. Even if the kick didn't happen right like now, but he saw the animal that chased him yesterday, and he was so upset that he almost died. He gave him a kick. When I say, beat the zoo, and this kick caused the blemish to develop. And he said, Shachadol, he may slaughter the animal because he did not intend to blemish it. He intended to save himself or he intended to express his rage at the fact that he was almost killed. I've shared this story many times. My producer will give you a number of this story. But uh, when I was in rabbinical school back in Montreal some 42 years ago, and we were learning the laws of kosher and unkosher, and what, what makes an animal kosher and unkosher, and you learn a lot of animal uh, physiology, they took us to the slaughterhouse to study the animal as it is slaughtered and inspected and cut up. And this was in Montreal. There were a group of Shochtim rabbinic ritual slaughters, and then there were probably 50 to 100 employees, French Canadians, who were working in the slaughterhouse. And here we are, a group of yeshiva boys wearing hats and jackets and innocence. Most of us had never seen a cow before, let alone an ox, except on the shelf. And uh, here we are in this very busy slaughterhouse, and we're walking down and watching. All of a sudden, all of the French Canadian employees, they start going, like creating a man-made alarm. And I have no idea what's going on. The only thing I can think of is the white zone is for loading and unloading only. Until finally somebody grabbed me by my shirt, under my jacket, and hoisted me up to this, like, working overpass. And seconds later, a bull came running. And that nearly ruined my whole day. So I'll never forget that experience of the bull running. <laughs> so when a bull runs after you, it kind of gets your adrenaline going, let me tell you. First-hand experience in Montreal. You have anything to declare, eh? Okay. Yeah, they actually created the Kol Nidre prayer. Kol Nidre, Vesare, Okay. That was just to wake up everybody. Uh, base 12, Tanim, children, who created a blemish in a firstborn, they were playing with the animal, they adopted it as a pet, and they were playing a little too while. a Gentile, he created a blemish, but the Jew had nothing to do with it, I say, that's fine, because he was not involved. But they had in mind to serve as this guy, but Yishkatol, he should not slaughter the animal for everyday food. When the blood of firstborn stops flowing freely, its blood may be left, this was a medical procedure that used to be done. A condition where the animal turns dark red, and its temperature rises, if it's not treated quickly, it could die, and that's how they treated it. Uh, Yakis, he can do that treatment. The Babachal is Kabbalah, he should not intend to cause a blemish. If not, Sabimum, Akos is doing it. If a blemish occurred, I say, Yishkatol, it's fine for him to slaughter it as everyday food. You dollar 14. Mutter lahot el mum, Babacher, Kedem, Sheyotzer lahabir ayon. It is permissible for the, far, for the Kohen, or the farmer, to cause a blemish within the firstborn while it's still in the uterus of its mother, before it's born. He does a surgical procedure. Yishkatol, and then he can slaughter it 
the Kohen, because it's not, it's not a sacrificeable firstborn. And the blemish was caused in the womb. What does this apply nowadays? Change from bias where there is no holy temple, and this could never be brought as a sacrifice. Because in the end, it's going to be eaten, blemished anyway, so he caused the blemish before it was born. But during the time that the holy temple stood, it is clearly forbidden to do that. Tesvav 15h, what if one witness told another witness, that this blemish developed unintentionally. Now, you know what this is called in our world? It's called hearsay. When one witness hears it from another witness, it's worth nothing. You can't testify. Hearsay. Somebody told me. In this case, though, now money is trustworthy because the rules are very lenient. We're only trying to determine how this blemish came. I feel Isha, Nemenes Lamar, defining off of Mumzem Eilab, Yeshachatolab. In Jewish law, for serious testimony, according to Allah, we learned this and we will learn it, a woman's testimony is not accepted, except for kosher laws and other laws where she's revealing fact. Here, a woman's testimony is perfectly acceptable because all she's saying is, I happen to know that this blemish was not intentionally caused. Any blemish which could be man-made, then the shepherd is reliable to say it happened by themselves. They were not intended. When the shepherd was not the Kohen, the shepherd was an Israelite, so he has some objectivity. And the firstborn is the Kohen. But the shepherd was the Kohen. And the firstborn is still in the hands of the Israelite. And the Kohen says, hey, it's a blemish. That's a little too close for comfort. He's not trustworthy. We suspect. Perhaps he caused the blemish. Because he's a Kohen, he's ready to accept it. There's a beautiful story of the man who runs into a synagogue. He says, help, help. There's a, a widow and nine children being evicted from her house for non-payment of rent. Help, we need to collect money. Emergency. He says, how much is needed? He says, $2,000. Very wealthy man was issued. He peels off $2,000. He says, here, by the way, God bless you for doing this. What's your connection? He says, what's my connection? I'm the landlord. <laughs> what number is that? A new one. Okay. Go, Daniel. I think it's an old one and you were absent. Yeah. <laughs> One coin testifies for another coin that this blemish came by itself. It's called Cohen and Cohen. And we're not suspicious of them that they have an underground deal working. I'll testify for you, you testify for me, and have a good day. The rule is that the Torah does occasionally suspect a coin under certain circumstances that he will create the blemish. And that's why they are not trustworthy or credible for their own purpose. The coin can't say, My animal is blemished. But his fellow coin could testify for him, and vice versa. We have an important rule in Halacha. And I'm going to say this slowly because it can be repeated many times as we go on. In the laws of the Rambam, a person will not sin to benefit someone else. Ain't Adam Chote below law. A person doesn't sin without him benefiting from it. Here he's testifying for the other coin. Or ain't Adam Chote la'acher. I feel the bond of the even the even the sons and the family of the coin to testify that this bechor was blemished on its own. The exception is the Cohen's wife, Mrs. Cohen. Why? Because the halacha says mitnei shehi kigufot. According to Jewish law, Jewish law determines that a wife is an extension of the husband. A husband is an extension of the wife. They are one unit, and therefore there is no separation. Yutches eighteen. The firstborn animal was the hand of the coin. The became blemished. The one witness testified So we have ascertained that the blemish occurred on its own. What we're not sure of is whether this is a serious, serious enough blemish in order to have the coin slaughtered in a mundane setting or not. And the coin who's holding this animal comes and he says, "Listen, my friends, friends, Romans and countrymen, lend me your ears." He says, "I showed this blemish to a blemish expert." And he said, yes, this is considered a blemish, go slaughter it. Go eat it, have a barbecue, knock yourself out. On this coin is believed. We're not concerned, perhaps he didn't show it to anybody. We, we, we could be suspicious, perhaps, that he made it up. And maybe it is an unblemished firstborn that should be slaughtered. The answer is no, we do believe him. He says, I showed it to an expert rabbi, to an expert, a blemishologist. Then we trust him. Why? Another rule here. Because no matter what we suspect this coin of, we would not suspect him of slaughtering holy sacrifices outside the holy temple. That's too big of a transgression. It is the sin of cutting off the soul. Serious punishment. Commissioner Bianos, we explained, and we don't have that much suspicion for this Kohen. You test the closing. Paragraph of this chapter. The Kohen is also trustworthy to state regarding the firstborn blemished animal. This firstborn was given 
to me by an Israelite blemished already. The Kohen is walking around with a blemish for his born. His friend says, why aren't you sacrificing this? He says, no, 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 he's blemished. How did he develop a blemish? He was given to me with a blemish. But like, no, Fabi Shusi, it didn't happen to me. Why? Because if he said it happened to me, we wouldn't believe him. We need testimony from somebody. So he says, it was given to me this way. Should we suspect that he's making that up and it wasn't given to him like that? The answer is no, we shouldn't suspect. He's credible. He's believed. Why? Because this is something that sooner or later will be revealed. And this is the principle that anything that sooner or later will come to light, people are not going to lie about. It's because this will be revealed sooner or later. Because ultimately somebody will bump into the guy and say, by the way, when you gave the Kohen that animal, was it blemished? Well, Miss and the Kohen is going to be afraid. Perhaps the last guy. The young will say, what are you talking about? It was unblemished. Therefore, the Kohen has to be very selective in his lies. And that's why he's credible. End of chapter 2. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchas Choros, the laws of the firstborn animal. So just to briefly recap, HaBechor VeHamaser VeHapesach, we say in the everyday Ezeho Mekomon section of davening, there are three sacrifices which are grouped together, Choros firstborn, Maser is the tithe, Pesach is the Paschal offering. These are unique kind of offerings, and they are offerings which belong to the person who offers them. The Bechor is very unique, because the Bechor is one of the 24, Matnos Kehuno, gifts of the Kohen, yet if the firstborn animal Cattle, sheep, lamb, goat is unblemished during the time that the Holy Temple stood. It must be offered by the Kohen as a sacrifice. A sacrifice which is not for atonement. It's his. Takes it home and eats it in Jerusalem with his family. A sacrifice nonetheless. The lower level of holiness. Kadoshim Kalim. If it's blemished, a blemished animal, as we learned in great detail earlier, may never be brought as a sacrifice. The Kohen still benefits from this firstborn, and he gets to use it as his own personal property. It doesn't have the sanctity attached to it. He can use it. Anybody could eat it. He can sell it. He can do basically what he likes with it once. It has that designation of being blemished. Now the question is, there's such a radical difference between unblemished, where it's a sacrifice, blemished, where it's his personal property, that people, Kohanim, were very tempted to be lenient on the pronunciation of your blemished. And there was a lot of, uh, as we used to say back in New Jersey, a lot of monkey business going on. Therefore, we have chapter 3, we cannot slaughter the firstborn animal as everyday non-sacrifice food. Unless it has been examined and declared by an expert, an expert who knows the physiology, who knows the body, the makeup of the animal, an expert who has studied the halachas that we studied previously of the 63, I think, or 64 blemishes uh, that a male animal could have. And this expert has to be licensed. Who gives the license, as we say in California, the DMV? No, just kidding. The prince, the head of the Jewish people in Israel, the head of the Sanhedrin, he has the power, the head of the Sanhedrin of the 71 judges, the Supreme Court, he has the power to say, you are licensed to declare blemishes in firstborn. It's an expertise. And he, out of respect to Israel, even though often in later times the Babylonian scholars were greater scholars, but in respect to Israel, they gave the head of the Sanhedrin during the time the Sanhedrin stood, the power to declare, to license these uh, experts on blemishes. The head of the Sanhedrin had to tell him, you are licensed to declare a firstborn has a blemish and could be used by the Kohen for his everyday needs. Furthermore, there are certain blemishes you don't need an expert for. If the animal has a leg or a foreleg or a leg cut off, that's a serious blemish. Even a child knows that. I feel becomes a major blemish. Revealed to everyone. You still need a licensed expert who received license from the head of the Sanhedrin to say this animal is blemished. So that it became systemized. Computerized. Probably not. And this expert can check and examine any firstborn animal with only one exception. Except for animals that belong to him. Why? Not because he has no expertise, but because he has no objectivity. Because a person wants his own firstborn to be found blemished, especially during the time when there is no base on English, there's nothing to do with an unblemished animal. You just have to wait and wait and wait until it becomes blemished. If there is no expert, no one was licensed by the head of the Sanhedrin to examine blemishes. And this blemish was a pretty obvious set one, distinct one, clear, undebatable. For example, the animal's eye was blinded. Oh, that's elementary. Or its forefoot was cut off, or its hind foot was broken. These are obvious blemishes. We take three prominent, learned members of the community. Knesset means the synagogue. You take three prominent, learned members of the synagogue, and they, as a troika, as a threesome, declare, this is a blemished animal. So that's the second choice. If there is no official, licensed 
also the firstborn animal who went into the diaspora. He had a set, real, serious, distinct blemish. to be permitted. My three prominent, knowledgeable members of the synagogue of their community. Some say that even if this Kohen is one of the three, because he has two more with him, and they are the majority, it's also okay. Now, usually, who comes with the firstborn? The Kohen. Because the Kohen wants to know if it's a sacrifice during the time that something is good. I'm just going to have a little tea. I already made a bracha. Or hopefully, the Kohen is looking for a declaration that is blemished so he can use it for his everyday business. There's another aspect, too. So he doesn't have to feed it anymore. It's not cheap to feed an animal. An expert, therefore, should not inspect a firstborn animal in, I guess he says, in Eretz Yisrael, or for an Israelite, until the Kohen is with him. Because we want the Kohen there. Perhaps the expert will tell a mum who it is a blemish. And you may slaughter it. We're concerned that the Israelite will take it for himself and not give it to the Kohen. Why would he take it for himself? If he was going to take it for himself, he doesn't have to ask anybody anything. The answer is because he's concerned. If it's fit for a sacrifice, he wouldn't touch it. Because that's like offering sacrifices outside of Israel. Or outside of the base of English. But if the, if the expert says it's blemished, in that case, he's just going to go ahead and eat it because the transgression is not that great. It's a question of if it's the Kohen's money for everyday purposes or his money for everyday purposes. It seems to be less, and it is much less of a transgression. So we're concerned that really the he's not going to give it to the Kohen. Although the halacha, our sages do not suspect that he will eat of holy sacrifice food outside the holy temple. Choshed who he is, suspected, to embezzle the gifts of the priesthood. Therefore, they instituted that blemish experts should not even respond to the requests of non-Kohanim. What do you need to know for? You're an Israelite. Give it to the Kohen. If this expert was a prominent scholarly expert, I'm sorry, if this fellow, this Israelite, was a scholar, and we know that he's got here, then the expert can't respond to him because we're not concerned that he's going to cheat the Kohen. What if the blemish was so obvious to everyone? Like the foreleg was caught, or the leg, being that he brought it to the scholar expert, the person is assumed that he's meticulous. Why? Because it's such an obvious blemish. Therefore, we can, the expert may examine for him, even though the coin is not with him, again, for the above-mentioned concern. What if somebody first slaughters the animal, and then, after he slaughters the animal, shows the blemish to an expert? After the slaughter. A little bit late. Even though it's a revealed obvious blemish, that has no effect by slaughter, which means the slaughtering didn't establish any difference to gain. For example, what is a blemish which would not be affected by slaughtering? The foreleg, or the leg was cut off, that's pretty obvious. Not affected by the slaughtering. However, our sages say that being that this was slaughtered without a declaration of an expert, also it is forbidden. It must be buried like a firstborn who died. Because the halacha is that the firstborn, as long as the blemish has not been declared, is an animal fit for sacrifice, and therefore if an animal fit for sacrifice dies, it should be buried, because it has a sanctity attached to it. But if the expert examined it before it was slaughtered, that becomes the everyday money of the coin. Now here he brings up an interesting example, a medical example, in the laws of blemishes. And again, you have to refer back to the detailed laws of blemishes earlier, if you want to understand all the fine details, but just briefly. If this firstborn animal had only one testicle and the normal healthy condition. It's two testicles, and that's clearly one of the disqualifying blemishes, but it had two sacks. So we're not sure if there's a testicle hidden somewhere or not. So the expert examined it. And sat it on its rump. And went and really examined it closely. He needed it. He felt around. And he did not. No matter what he did, he could not locate a second testicle. So that is a blemish. The expert said, it is permissible. Go for it. It doesn't have to be treated as a sacrifice. So the Kohen brought it to the Shulchan and slaughtered it. To use it for everyday food. And they started butchering the animal. They found the second testicle was clinging to the flanks. So what happens? The fact is that this was never blemished. We just couldn't locate it. Being that all was done by the rules, it is permissible. Being that the expert went and needed around the area and did everything he could to locate it. He did his thing. But if it was not properly 
search for by this kneading process, even though the expert okayed it, and they say you covered it, it should be buried as a sacrifice that died on its own. What if someone was not an expert? We learned earlier, if there's no expert, you need three prominent, knowledgeable members from the synagogue. What if he, it was one and not an expert? And he examines this firstborn animal, and he says, yeah, this is blemished for sure. And by his declaration, by his unlicensed declaration, they slaughter the animal. They say you cover the animal should be buried like a sacrifice which died on its own. And this guy should go and cover the cost because he's the one that made the mess. This self-declared expert. How much did he pay? And this is interesting. He says, 25% of the value of the animal for a small animal, like a lamb, a sheep, a goat. 50% of the damage for a large animal. Why? Why should he pay the whole thing? He caused damage. Because the owner of the animal was penalized in order that he not delay offering the firstborn. Because why don't you go offer it as an offering? Why are you waiting until it's blemished? Which is what people very often did. So because the Torah, the, our sages wanted to penalize people for holding on to it, we learned earlier that you're not allowed to hold on to a firstborn past a year and so on and so forth. Now there's another issue why the penalty is even more for a smaller animal, like a sheep, lamb, goat, called the behemadaka. The answer is our sages ordained there was so much damage being done by these smaller animals, by goats and sheep and lambs, to people's vineyards and people's fields. There was tremendous economic damage that was being done because people were not able to control their small animals. So our sages ordained that people should no longer raise small animals in Israel, especially in any areas near agriculture because of the agricultural damage. The second thing is that people should not raise small animals, again, lamb, sheep, goats, in Israel because of the damage that they do to other people's fields and crops. That was the reason for this decree by our sages. And in the diaspora, this is not applicable, and therefore the law might be applied differently. There's discussion here. Okay. What if somebody is a blemish expert and he gets paid for it? He's a salaried blemish expert. One should not slaughter the animal by his declaration. Why? Because it's not something somebody should be paid for. It's more of a mitzvah. Unless he was really a true expert, and that's all he did. So he's got to support his family. Our sages knew, there's no one like him. So the community put him on a salary. To examine firstborn. And he got paid the same thing, whether it was blemished or unblemished. Furthermore, a person should only charge for one animal once. Otherwise, he's going to want the animal to come back every day and collect another salary. You know, like some car mechanics. Present company excluded. And he should continue to inspect this animal again and again and again, even though he's not being paid for it, in order that people not suspect that he's being paid to declare that it is blemished. And again, as we see from these halachas, it was a very big deal. A, an unblemished animal either had to be brought as a sacrifice during the time that the Beis Amigdash stood, which is a whole procedure, or during the time there was no Beis Amigdash, an, un, uh, an unblemished animal just had to be fed until it develops a blemish. So there was very good reason for people to want their firstborns to be declared blemished. When a person is suspect to sell firstborn animals as everyday animals, which means they're obviously not God-fearing, and they bend the laws, they say, what's the big deal? This person should not be used even as a supplier of deer meat. What's the problem with deer meat? doesn't even have the application of firstborn, because deer meat could be similar to other meat, and once a guy cheats, he cheats. Once a guy is dishonest, he's dishonest, especially in the, in the meat business. Because deer meat is, in a sense, very similar to calf meat. Furthermore, there's also another commodity of animals which we should never forget about, and that is the hide of the animal, the skin, the leather. We don't buy hides, which are not processed. We don't buy unprocessed hides. I feel the cave, even if they are from a feminine animal, he takes a look at the skin, which is still whole, and he sees it was a feminine animal. He can't even trust this guy. Because perhaps he'll cut off the masculine area, and he'll claim it was feminine. Again, dishonest is dishonest. He'll say, this is the skin of a feminine, of a female. Once you get into a pattern of dishonesty and you lose your credibility, you suddenly got a problem. So you can't buy from this guy. Furthermore, men like him, men with can't even buy wool. You know, bad, bad, black sheep, have you any wool? Sheep give wool. Firstborn are not supposed to have their wool taken because it's sacred. Even if it's already whitened. Certainly, wool that's still unprocessed, soiled, dirty. 
because it's just fresh, it just happened. So again, this man is not trusted. He could have taken a firstborn's wool. However, we can purchase from him spun wool, rolls of wool, processed hides, because that's already long after the process and distant. He would not even process the skin of an unblemished animal because he's afraid to leave it around. Perhaps the courts will get wind of it. And they'll penalize him. And once the court penalizes somebody, it's hard for that person to get rid of that reputation. Once somebody's been, someone's reputation has been tainted, it's very hard to untaint it. Test 9. When somebody slaughters a firstborn, Omacharian sells it. And then it is ascertained that he never showed it to an expert. This is a problem. Because our sages ordained that it must be shown to an expert. The expert must declare it blemished. Here in this case, it never happened. And they already ate it, at least parts of it. That which was eaten was eaten. However, even that did not go down well because he found out that it was a problem. The buyer. He asked the money should be refunded to the buyer. The parts that have not been consumed, covered should be buried like an animal sacrifice that dies on its own. Everything refunded. The same law applies when somebody feeds someone an animal that was going to die on its own. Now says the Rambam, we're crossing over into the laws of buying and selling, which we will refer to in great detail when we get there. What if a firstborn was found? Meaning unable to live for 12 months. If it was unblemished, it was found to be not a viable living animal after it was skinned, after the hide was removed. However, you saw that the hide must be burned. As we explained in the laws of unfixed sacrifices. Why? Because a bechir is a sacrifice until and if it's declared unblemished. And if a sacrifice dies on its own, it has to be burned. The boss you covered and the meat should be buried. And here there's a lot of discussion. Let's understand something. One second. That is if it was unblemished. But if it was slaughtered after the expert declared it blemished. Now once the expert declares it blemished, it becomes the coin's own personal funds. The boss you covered and the meat should be buried. But the coin can benefit from the skin, from the hide. Provided it was slaughtered by the declaration of an expert. And here there's discussion. Why should this animal have to be buried? Didn't we learn earlier that it's the Cohen's own personal property and he can sell it even to a non-Jew? Why can't he sell this meat to the non-Jew and make some money from it? The answer is it has to first enter into the usable domain of the Cohen, and this never entered into the usable domain of the Cohen. That's what some of the commentaries say. Yudalab 11, the firstborn animal, its meat was consumed according to halacha. Everything is legal. Whether it's unblemished and it was consumed as a sacrifice, the Cohen brought it to the base of Midrash and sacrificed it and consumed its meat, or it was blemished and he consumed it as everyday meat, just as we may benefit from its skin. So also, it's now permitted to benefit from its shearings. From the wool. Why? Because this belongs to the Kohen. Even if it's a sacrifice, it all belongs to the Kohen after slaughtering. But any wool that was sheared from it while it was still living, I feel not sure even wool that uh, was pulled off, is forbidden to benefit from because it's wool from a sacrifice that was not sacrificed. I feel Furthermore, even wool that was taken from it after it was blemished, even after the slaughtering, certainly after the death, because that wool that was taken from it while it was living, even though now it's dead, retains its prohibited status. Same law applies with the tithing of the animal, with the tithe animals. We explained this at great length in the laws of trespassing and utilizing holy foods, holy animals, things that belong to the base of for one's own benefit. This decree was only created applying to the firstborn and the tithing. Because people have a tendency to look at this more leniently. Because it's not an offering that's brought for atonement. Because if there's an offering that is for atonement, for sin offering or guilt offering or any type of atonement offering, people take it very seriously because they want atonement. They want to be forgiven. This is a everything is good situation so people will be more lenient and more liberal. Perhaps he's going to leave it hanging out and he'll take all the wool, carbiana, shemitzvah, lachit, So we learned that it's a mitzvah to consume it in the first year, if possible. Ben tamim, ben whether it is whole, and it should be brought in its first year as an offering, or it's blemished and it should be consumed in the first year, because even a blemished animal, until it's consumed, retains sanctity. Yud beiz becher, shoyu beit semer, medublo, ushchote. A firstborn has loose hanging wool, and it was slaughtered. Es yonira imay minagiza, mutabano. That which resembles the animal's general wool may be used. Es yonira imay that which looks different, and this would be the wool whose roots are turned in the opposite direction and face its tips. Because this, we assume, was pulled off or taken off during the lifetime of the animal, which still has the sanctity of the wool of a living firstborn. The shearings of a firstborn, even a blemished firstborn, which belongs to the Kohen for personal property, but still, until that happens, it's holy. Which became confused with everyday 
shearings. Now, we have to understand that to us, at least to me, uh, wool, shearings doesn't mean all that much, because I don't think I ever sheared a sheep. But you know, what's the value of it? What's the big deal? Because we take for granted. But the fact is that wool comes from the shearings. Wool, to this day, is a, is a very important central fabric. This is before our sages invented polyester. So you can't live a normal life without wool. This is like a part of the everything. It's so important. So it's a very serious commodity. So what if wool became the wool of this sheep, firstborn sheep, even a blemished firstborn sheep, but still the wool retains sanctity until it reaches a certain point. Then it gets mixed with other wool. Even one batch of wool with a thousand other batches. Allah says it's all forbidden, which is perplexing. Because in Allah there is the idea of bottle berev, of something that's nullified in a majority, or bottle shishim, or nullified in 60, or bottle elef, nullified in a thousand, in various applications. Here it's a thousand shearings of non-firstborn animals that got mixed up with one <coughs> grouping of wool from a firstborn animal. Why can't it become nullified? The answer is, and this is a principle in Allah, it has importance and prominence. Anything that has importance and prominence, wool of a firstborn has importance and prominence, it can't ever be nullified. And therefore, if somebody weaves even a little bit wool into a garment, two fingers worth, three fingers worth, Yudolik, that's the Malay Hasid, various interpretations, Yudolik should be consumed in flame, should be burnt. In holy wool, it becomes sanctified with as little, even a little bit of holy wool. A wool from a consecrated animal, even the smallest amount, causes the entire garment to become consecrated. End of chapter 3. Rambam, Mishneh Torah. Hilchos Bechoros, the laws of firstborn animal offerings. One of the gifts that comes to the Kohen is the firstborn animal. If it is unblemished, it is offered as a sacrifice during the time that the Sanhedrin stands. If and when it becomes blemished, it may be used by the Kohen for his personal property without having sanctity attached to it. Once the Kohen gets to use it, until the Kohen starts using it, we learn that there is sanctity attached to it, so that its wool should not be used and so on and so forth until it is utilized by the Kohen in the case of the blemished offering. Now, we get into more details. Peter could be chapter 4. What about an animal that belongs to partners? Behemas, Hashutofim, an animal belonging to partners, Chayebes, is obligated in the midst of the firstborn. The partners have to give the firstborn to the Kohen. Others argue and say, wait a minute, doesn't the verse say, your, singular, cattle, your, singular sheep, not plural. Yes, that's true, Ella, but the reason this is, is as the overlord teaches us, this minimizes, this removes, this excludes Shutofis Hanochri, the partnership of a non-Jew. Why? Because the non-Jew was not commanded the mitzvah of the firstborn. The mitzvah of the firstborn goes back to Egypt, and it's a thing the Jewish people were saved by the, by the Egyptians, and the Jews have the privilege in the mitzvah of the firstborn. A non-Jew simply doesn't have the mitzvah. So if he's a partner, he exempts the whole partnership. Shemhoya Shutofis for example, if a non-Jew was a partner in a cow, or in a fetus, because sometimes they used to sell fetuses. That's what we call futures. Even if somebody went public, and a non-Jew had one thousandth of an interest in this fetus, or in this mother, the aim in the mother of the blood or the fetus, because a non-Jew is a partner, and the firstborn is a mitzvah for Jews, this firstborn is exempt from the mitzvah of the giving the Kohen, the firstborn. Now, what if the non-Jew had ownership of one limb of the mother or of the fetus? He, somebody told him, he asked how much it cost you, they told him it cost you an arm or a leg. So now he owns an arm or a leg, a foreleg or a leg, and we evaluate. If this limb would be severed, and the animal would then be blemished, then to begin with, the whole partnership is exempt. If that limb would be severed, and it would not become blemished, and therefore unfit, then in this case, this partnership is obligated in the mitzvah of firstborn. So here we learn that uniquely, this is only a Jewish mitzvah, going back to the Egyptian experience. When somebody purchases the fetus, which is about to be born from the cow of a non-Jew, so the mother animal is, an, is belongs to a non-Jew, but the fetus now belongs to the Jew. Or vice versa. The Jew sells the fetus of his cow to the non-Jew. Even though it's not good to do so, to begin with, it's prohibited. Still, it's exempt from the mitzvah of the firstborn. However, there's no penalty involved. What if somebody accepts an animal from a non-Jew? And, you know, the economy then was different than it is today. This was one of the big sources of income, where people would take animals and to care for them and to breed them, and then they would split the profits. In this scenario, the Jew takes an animal, receives an animal, contracts an animal from a non-Jew. What's the deal? The Jew will work with it, will care for it. They have love, they have a name, and they're going to split the offspring. 
That's his salary. Is he gets commission? He gets part of the offspring. A or Nochi Shekibel Misrabas. That could be vice versa. The animal belongs to the Jew, and the non-Jew is going to care for it and see to it that it is cared for until it gives birth. In any event, there's a partnership here between Jew and non-Jew. These situations are exempt from the mitzvah of firstborn Shanemar. The verse says, the famous Kaddish believers, Peter Korechem Bibnei Yisrael, opening the womb of anyone within the of any animal belonging to the Jewish people, Bibnei Yisrael. Yisrael. The whole kitten kaboodle, as he used to say back in Jersey, has to belong to the Jew. This is not a mitzvah that has to be performed or may even be performed by the non-Jew because of this special mitzvah. Somebody receives sheep from a non-Jew with a set fee. And they, they decided that the profit would be split. The deal was they would split the profits. However, the impachasu, I guess in order to encourage the investment, the Jew gave a guarantee that if there's a loss, he'll, he'll handle the loss. The Jew guarantees that there won't be a loss. Even though it is in the ownership of the Jew because the Jew is caring for it. So it's like his because he's responsible for it. And the profit is split, but the losses are not. The fact is that if the non-Jew will not find other monies to collect from him, he's going to go and take these animals themselves and their offspring. So indirectly the non-Jew has ownership in them. So it's like the non-Jew has ownership and responsibility for these animals, the mother animals and their offspring. And the hand of the non-Jew is right in the middle of the pot. And therefore because of this, so the mothers and the offspring are both exempt. The offspring of the offspring, they are obligated. Because they are clearly the Jews, because it's the offspring that belongs to the Jew. In these offspring, the non-Jew has no part. So here we see to the extent that this law applies. When a Jew gave money to a non-Jew, and went and purchased by law, he purchased by law, by secular law of the government in the country they live, he purchased an animal for money. We have learned and we will learn extensively that a Jew acquires something by physically pulling the animal, pulling the object, taking the object, and putting it in his possession. Just a money sale alone is not sufficient. Whereas in the non-Jewish world, a money sale, the money paid, is the most important aspect. So here, the Jew gave the non-Jew money and he purchased an animal in the laws of the courts of their laws, even though he didn't acquire it. As Jews do, he didn't physically take possession. Kono, he acquires it because by the laws of the non-Jew from whom he bought it, he acquired it. So now he's obligated in the firstborn. And so also if the non-Jew purchased an animal from the Jew using secular law, even though he didn't physically take possession of the animal as Jewish law requires. But still, because he's a non-Jew, he acquired it. Because they follow his law. And because of this law, he is now exempt. This situation is now exempt from the birthright. From the mitzvah of the firstborn. What if you have someone who was studying to convert and become a Jew, and then at a certain point in time he converted? Now once he converts, he's 100% responsible for every law. The problem is, we're not sure if his cow gave birth to an offspring before he converted, or after. Because if it's before he converted, there's no mitzvah firstborn. If it's after he converted, of course there's a mitzvah firstborn. <coughs> this is one of those many conditions discussed in the Talmud where we're simply unsure whether this is the firstborn or not. We learned earlier the halacha, the application of what we do with this animal that is unsure because we certainly cannot sacrifice it. We let it wander until it's blemished. If somebody purchases an animal from a non-Jew, we're not sure if this animal ever gave birth or not. So we're not sure if its next offspring is the firstborn or not. We all that And now this animal gave birth in the possession of the Jew. Again, this is a classic example of a doubtful firstborn. So what should be done with this doubtful firstborn, like the previous paragraph? Again, as I said earlier, it cannot be offered as a sacrifice, because we're not sure. It has to be blemished before it could be eaten. But who gets to eat it? Not the Kohen, the owner. Why? Doesn't the firstborn go to the Kohen? Only when we're sure. The Ainu Lakhani does not go to the Kohen. Why? Because now when it's a question of ownership of a blemished animal, we have the old, important, fundamental principle. If you want to take something out of somebody else's possession, you bring proof. Possession is non-intentional law. Now the Kohen says, it's my blemished firstborn. Really, prove it. And he can't prove it. Therefore, once it loses its sanctity, it is the possession, property, the personal property of the Jew, of the farmer, of the Israelite farmer. And of course, we studied this theme earlier. Somebody purchases a nursing animal from a non-Jew. Now, you can assume that if an animal is nursing, it's nursing its offspring. However, it's an assumption. Because maybe it's not nursing its offspring. Maybe it's a wet nurse. We do not have to suspect that it's somebody else's offspring and it happens to be nursing somebody else's offspring. So we can assume that this animal already gave birth to the next offspring which it gives birth to even a male is not a firstborn. 
animal. It is nursing. Seems, looks like another species. If it's a cow and it's nursing uh, uh, an offspring that looks a little bit like a goat. I feel or looks even like a swine. And of course, there was a lot of cross-breeding back then. And we learned all this in great detail. As far as the laws of birthright are concerned, the firstborn is exempt. Because we're not really 100% sure whether it's its offspring or not. So also, an animal that's providing milk. Usually when an animal provides milk, it means it gave birth. Not always, but usually. When it gives birth, it is exempt now from the mitzvah of firstborn. The average animal does not suckle, does not, nur- does not give milk, rather, until it has given birth. So we can assume that this animal has given birth. When somebody takes an animal, purchases an animal from a Jew, this is an interesting law. We can safely assume when you purchase an animal from a Jew that it already gave birth. Why? Because if it didn't, the seller would be obligated to disclose it to the buyer. A Jew has to tell another Jew, by the way, this animal never gave birth. Your first born of this animal is going to have to go to the Kohen. If he didn't tell him that, we can assume that it already gave birth. Until the seller tells him it didn't, because that's the deal. A Jew would never be silent and cause his fellow Jew, the buyer, to eat holy sacrifices outside the base of which is what this would be. Because he didn't disclose. Vadai Shabikro, surely it gave birth, and that's why he sold it without disclosure. What if a smaller animal, sheep, lamb, goat, gave birth to some type of offspring, some type of fetus, but it's not fully developed, so we really don't know what it is. We can't even identify the shape. And this kind of a miscarriage, so to speak, is referred to in halachic language as tinuf, just a miscarriage, a, a, a chunk of something. We're not sure what it is. So now the question is is that a birth? And if it is, would the next birth be exempt from the mitzvah of firstborn? If the shepherds who are supposedly supposed to know this stuff, the shepherd said, this is a fetus. doesn't look like it because it's premature. If the shepherds who are objective experts say that, we can assume it's true, and then the next offspring is not a firstborn, and this farmer is exempt. However, it has to be shown to an expert shepherd, because shepherds know this stuff. To a chukham shepherd. When one purchases an animal from a non-Jew, even if it was small, and it gave birth in the first year, we're still not sure if it's the firstborn or not. Why? Perhaps even this young animal had a previous aborted birth while it was in the ownership of the non-Jew. So also a larger animal who aborted a placenta. Usually placenta comes with a baby, with an offspring. This is a sign of an offspring. There is no placenta without a baby, without a fetus. Now the placenta, there's a fetus somewhere. And therefore, the next birth is exempt from now the question is, should this placenta be treated as sacred? And the answer is no. It can even be thrown to the dogs. Because only a definite male becomes sacred as a firstborn. And the average gender statistic with animals is 50% male, 50% female. So it's a 50-50 deal. And we've already explained earlier that even when a male is born, if it doesn't have at least some similarity in species look to its mother, it doesn't become sacred. So that adds to the 50%. Because we don't really know what this looks like. So statistically, less than 50% of animals born become firstborn. Because the gender <coughs> thing is 50-50. The mixed breed thing <coughs> is a small percentage, but it's a percentage. Therefore, real male firstborn are less than 50%. And halakhically, by and large, we're never concerned with a minority statistic. However, if this animal belongs to the holy temple fund, to the sacred, it should be buried because it's already sacred. Because in the sacred, females and males, male animals are both sacred. What if a large animal discharges a large chunk of blood? And we're not sure whether this was an aborted fetus or not. It's exempt from firstborn. Because we can safely assume that in this large chunk of discharged blood, in this large chunk of discharged blood, there was a fetus. There was so much blood, you see the ubiquity that the fetus was lost and nullified. Whatever, it's, like, it's almost like a wafer of blood. is buried like an aborted firstborn. Even though there's no holiness. So why should we bury it if there's no holiness? Because through the burial, the word will get out that this animal is now exempt from the mitzvah of firstborn. We already explained extensively what it has to do with human birth. That it takes 40 days to form a fetus. 
And therefore, if a woman miscarries in less than 40 days after conception, it's not a child, not a fetus. That is when the human condition, but the offspring of an animal, our sages were not 100% sure how many days it takes for the fetus to be considered a fetus. You know what they say on the lighter side, there's a big debate as to when a fetus becomes a real human being. And in the condition of the Jewish people, it's only when he graduates from college and becomes a doctor. Up until then, he's still his mother's baby. Abel Amru, our sages were unsure as to at what point it becomes a fetus, but they were sure. Shama Palestine, of them, somebody, if a woman, that if an animal aborts a, a, an aborted uh, lump, that she does not conceive after that, blood, and she doesn't receive a child, another child, for a good 30 days. Here's a situation where the animal left the corral pregnant, went into the field, and came back, and the pregnancy is, is not there. So we can safely assume that it gave birth. The next offspring of this animal that left the corral pregnant and came back, not pregnant, is in a doubtful status. It is or it isn't. Because perhaps it wasn't really a fetus. Perhaps she miscarried something that does not exempt in the laws of firstborn. And in something that is an abortion in the case of an animal, it's not really considering, considered. Opening the womb, until its head was the size of the top of the needle of a wolf, W-O-O-F, which is a weaving needle. The needle used for the wolf is larger than that used for the warp. In the laws of Shabbos, we learned about the wolf and the warp. What if there's an animal that went into a traumatic labor and the animal is dying in labor? It's just all went wrong. What do you do? Then the person helping with the birth, the veterinarian, is permitted to cut limb by limb of the fetus because the mother is dying. And as it comes out, not to be concerned with this being a firstborn, but you can, you can throw these pieces to the dogs, which you wouldn't do if it was a firstborn. And the next birth will be considered a firstborn. Why? Because it only came out in little pieces, in limbs. And a birth has to be the entire animal, or most of the animal. However, if the majority of the animal came forth, and as you recover, then it must be buried, it has to be treated as sacred. And if there are men this animal is now exempt from the birthright of its next offspring. If he cut off one limb and put it aside, a second limb and put it aside, until he finished the majority, and they call away one of the then they all need to be buried, because you have in cut off pieces a majority of the fetus, and if there are exempt from firstborn, being the majority came forth, and showing whether whole or cut up, and they will before us, and the became sanctified, retroactively test blood. Because now you have two thirds, the nifter amin apchera, and it's exempt. You also shlish derech. What if a third came out as a C-section? Which nay shlishim derech and two thirds as a normal birth. Ain't a kaddish. It's not holy because we learned earlier about C-sections not being firstborn. Shaharei varishin liyotza derech rechem because the majority of the first born did not come through the womb, and the firstborn must open the womb. Oh, mafreyu miskaddish, and it becomes only consecrated in the other situation retroactively. Tesayin yotza niyot. What if the minority, less than the majority of an animal, comes out, a lesser portion, a bergadol of a major limb. And this part that came out is the majority of the offspring. It now becomes exempt from the condition of firstborn. And that which came forth should be buried and treated as possibly holy. The fetus came forth, which is the majority of this limb. And as a suffix, we're unsure. Whether it became exempt or not. That which comes after it is a doubtful firstborn. When a firstborn was wrapped in a fiber, they took the firstborn, inserted a fiber in the womb, encircled it, and it comes out. Not touching the womb, but being protected from touching the womb by the fiber. The person who helped this animal give birth, for some reason, wrapped this fetus in the placenta of another animal. Or its sister animal was wrapped was wrapped around it and came forth. In all of the above scenarios, the bottom line is, the fetus did not have direct contact with the womb, because it's here, it's wrapped in fiber, the percent of another animal, in its sister animal. We're really unsure as to whether this is a firstborn or not, because the big question is, is the firstborn that which emerges from the womb first, or is a firstborn that which pushes out of the womb, touching the womb walls? This firstborn did not touch the womb walls as it emerged. There's a, a twin I know, a young man who's a twin with his twin sister, and when he introduces his grown-up twin sister, he says, I'd like you to meet my womb mate. Wow. What number is that? That's a good one. What if 
The farmer attaches two wombs one to another, creative deliveries. The animal emerges from one womb and enters into the other womb. So now the animal came forth from its mother's womb, entered into another animal's womb, but it's still in the womb. We're really unsure in whether the animal into whose womb this animal entered and now will give birth is exempt from firstborn or not. Because now this animal, who never conceived, gave birth to an animal that was put in its womb. Or it does not become exempt until its womb will open. And its offspring, its own offspring will open its womb. What if for some reason something was not normal, not the normal condition, and suddenly the walls of the womb just opened wide and the animal just emerged smooth and easy, which again is not a normal condition. We're touched upon this earlier. If the emergence of the fetus has to touch the walls of the womb as it emerges, which is a normal condition, it pushes out, or it just has to come forth from the atmosphere, from the air, so to speak, of the womb. What if the walls of the womb were completely uprooted? And the walls of the womb were now suspended around the neck of the animal, which is extremely unusual. So the fact of the matter is that the animal did not come out of the womb. The animal took the womb with it. Whether it sanctifies because it's in its place, or also outside of its place. Here, the womb is not in its place. So is this considered a birth for the purpose of firstborn? Chafal, the closing paragraph of chapter 4. If the skin, the flesh, of the supporting walls of the womb, just completely decomposed, which again is not a normal condition. This is not a sacred firstborn. Because the womb walls decomposed, so it never was able to emerge from the womb. What if part of the womb walls became decomposed and opened up, but the vast majority of the walls of the womb are still there? The majority is more than the decomposition, and it came out through the open area. Or the open area was the majority over the closed area, but it went out the standing area. This is another case where we're really not sure, and we learned earlier the application is not brought as a sacrifice. The owner farmer can hold on to it, and if the Cohen wants it, he has to prove it, which of course he's unable to end up chapter 4.